Well, good morning. As Tommy said, I am not Dr. Gilcher. He is away. He'll be back next week. And before he returns, we need to get our story straight. Our numbers are down a little bit today. So we are going to blame spring break and the spring ahead, not my preaching. All right? So let's get our story straight so when he comes back and asks the question, we know why. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a student of church history, and I love church history, and, and uh, I love teaching church history. The church began on the day of Pentecost, and for about the first 70 years, the apostles who were there led the church. And I wonder what it would have been like about 70 years into the life of the church, the day after the apostle John died. Jesus had appointed the apostles. They were there to build the church and to lead the church. And then the apostle Paul, uh, John, the last apostle, died. What was going through their minds? Well, I think we have a pretty good idea of what they were thinking because God in his wisdom had established the church of Jesus Christ and that they would be led by the great shepherd, Christ himself, who would have an army of under-shepherds, men we call elders. And it would be through biblical eldership that Christ would build healthy churches. Elders were leaders in the church from the very early years. In fact, we can see from the book of Acts, sometime between the martyrdom of Stephen and what we call the, the great famine in Palestine or in Judah, Judea, there were already elders in place in Jerusalem. That's sometime between at least A.D. 35 and A.D. 44. We know there were elders because that's the first time they're recorded in the book of Acts. Elders were there with the apostles when they had theological issues, when they had things to discuss, they had decisions to make. It says the elders and the apostles got together and they made the decisions. There have been elders in the church since the beginning. And the apostles, they and the apostles delivered their direction to the churches. And Paul instructed Titus to appoint elders in every city, in every town. And last week, Jared preached on the qualifications for elders. What does it take? What do we look for in a man of God to ascend to the office of elder? Today, we're going to take a look at the work of the elder. What does the elder in the church do? And that's what the passage today is going to help us see. This is about the work of elders. And I, I use that very specifically. I don't like saying the role of elders or the responsibilities of elders. Eldership is work. That's why we have our title here. It's shepherds in the trenches. I like what Carlos said, that, that people come alongside. We fight in the trenches for souls. It's work. It's the work of elders. Elders are not a board of directors that sit around some conference table and make decisions and decree that this should be done or that should be done. Elders work. They work in the trench warfare for the very souls of the flocks appointed to them. Hebrews 13, 17 reminds us that elders are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. 
It's the work of an elder. So this morning, we're going to see several things as we go through the passage that Carlos read. This morning, we're going to see the responsibilities of the elders. Then we're going to see how the elders are supposed to carry those out. We'll see the reward for the elders. And then we will see the responsibility of the congregation towards the elders and towards each other. So that's where we're going. And I was reviewing my sermon notes, and after two hours, I got tired. So we'll see how long we go here today. No, just kidding. <laughs> Hopefully not two hours. We've got a lot of time, though. So anyway, the Apostle Paul is writing to the churches in Asia Minor. That's, that's modern-day Turkey. If you need to get the, the map in front of your eyes and see what this is about, that's uh, today modern-day Turkey. And he's writing to the churches there, and they were suffering under persecution. So these are churches that are suffering. These are, are people who are suffering. However, it was going to get worse. You see, the Lord had revealed to Peter that there was a coming fiery ordeal or persecution coming. And we think about this letter. This letter was written only a few years before the persecution of the church under Nero, the emperor Nero. So this letter was written not only for the current persecution and the suffering, but in preparation for the fiery ordeal, what was coming soon thereafter. And to prepare, they need to be like Christ, he would tell them. When Christ suffered, and they need to arm themselves, get this, he said arm themselves with the same type of thinking that Christ had when Christ suffered, and that was to fully trust God. We remember the picture of of Jesus in the garden the night he was going to be arrested and he's suffering and yet he says not not my will but yours be done he trusted the father that's our example and specifically they were told to avail themselves of some god appointed resources that they would need during this time of persecution in chapter 4 we we see that they were supposed to have a discipline of prayer they were supposed to be self-controlled and sober-minded so it wouldn't impact their prayer negatively. You see, sin and foolishness hinder our prayer lives. And not only when that happens do we fail to pray and not pray, but often we pray with the wrong attitude during those times of sin and foolishness. So we are to be self-controlled and sober-minded so not to impact our prayer life. The second thing we need to have is we need God's people, the local congregation. Yes, we need each other. We are to love one another earnestly, and we are to show hospitality without grumbling, and we are to serve one another using the gifts that God has given to us. You see, every believer has been given a blood-bought gift of the Spirit, and there is not a single gift of the Spirit out there for the use and benefit of the person who has it. All the gifts are to be used in the body for others. So when we have gifts, it's for the benefit of others. And we need his spirit, he would tell us in, in chapter four. We're told that when we suffer for Christ, we are blessed because the spirit of glory, of the glory of God rests upon us. See, God has given us his spirit for the times of persecution and suffering. And then get this, in that list of these God-ordained resources that we need during times of persecution and suffering, he said, we need biblical elder leadership. 
We need elder leadership during times of persecution and suffering. And that's our text for today. We need elders to shepherd the flock. You see, Peter exhorted the elders. He said to my fellow elders, he said, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. And then he says, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. He began this letter citing his credentials as the apostle, the apostle Peter. Now he's a fellow elder. See, recall the conversation between Jesus and Peter after the resurrection. You see, prior to Jesus' arrest, when they were all together, and Jesus was telling them about what's to happen, Peter made the bold declaration that even if these other guys all abandon you, even if these other guys leave you, I'm never going to leave you. I'm, I'm not abandoning you, Jesus. He made that bold declaration. And what did Jesus say? He said, before morning, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And as Peter is outside of the trial, outside of the building where Jesus is being tried, he begins denying Christ. And we're told, we're shown in the gospel that after he had denied him for the third time, right as he was denying Christ for the third time and the rooster was beginning to crow, they were leading Jesus out of the building and he and Jesus and Peter made eye contact. And Peter knew. He knew. Peter knew that Jesus was aware that he had just betrayed him. As you can imagine, Peter would be devastated by that. Peter's an amazing guy, but he had his ups and downs. And he was now going to be in one of the great downturns of his life. And he would end up self-disqualifying himself as worthy to carry on the ministry. It says that he wanted to go back up to Galilee to go fishing. And the way it's, it reads is because he was a fisherman now. He's no longer a fisher of men, as Jesus had originally called him to be. He was going to go fish for fish because he was disqualified. And they're out fishing all night. And apparently he's not a good fisher of fish anymore either because they come up empty. And then there's Jesus on the shore who tells him to cast his net in again. And they load up the fish. And at that moment, he recognizes that is Jesus. And he dives out and he's got to go be with Jesus. And he's there on the shore. But Jesus has to take him back to that denial. He denied him three times. So Jesus is going to tell him or question him three times. Peter, do you love me? And when Peter affirms his love, he says, I need you to feed my lambs. I need you to shepherd the sheep. Peter, I need you to feed my sheep. You see, that is an elder. That, that is a shepherd. Peter knew that. Peter had now lived 30 years as a shepherd of the people of God. He understood it. He says to my fellow elders, I get it. I know how tough this is being an elder. But I still exhort you to this. I'm going to call you to come alongside me. I've got scars too. And I've got scars 
of suffering for obedience, and I've got the scars of my time of disobedience and failure. I've got all kinds of scars. But I want you to come alongside me now to this task. His additional motivation, he reminds them that he was a witness to the sufferings of Christ. And he had seen both the suffering and the risen Christ. And to be a witness to this thing doesn't mean he just saw it. It means that he then told people about it. He gave testimony to this. So he was a witness of the suffering and the resurrection, and he went about telling people. And many who did that, many who told of Christ's death and resurrection would pay dearly for that and even pay with their lives. In fact, the term martyred came to refer to one who was killed for being a Christian witness. Peter says, I was a witness. And these credentials make him a trustworthy source to encourage the elders. And his final motivation was to remind them of the future glory. Christ will return. That's the future glory. Christ is coming back. You see what we have here? This isn't all there is. And I know you're thinking, well, this is Texas. That's got to be really close. <laughs> no. There's more. And Christ is coming back, and he's going to make all things right again. And that not only is Peter saying he's going to be part of that and partaker of the future glory, we are going to be partakers of that future glory. That is what awaits us as well, and that's the motivation. And as he says this, it's also worth noting that he doesn't say, if you have elders in these churches, every church was assumed to have elders. Church leadership through a plurality of elders was the normal way churches were led in the New Testament. And also, I want you to note this. And it says that, uh, that they are going to shepherd the flock of God that is among them. And then a little bit later, and it says, uh, those in your charge. You see, when you're a shepherd, you're a shepherd over a flock, a known flock. And this goes hand in hand with the passage that we saw in Hebrews 13 that said, elders keep watch over your souls. As an elder... And as the elders, they must know who's in the flock. We must not only know our flock, but we must know who's in the flock. And see, the elders' primary responsibility and almost exclusive responsibility is for the flock here at Christ Community Bible Church. You see, we're accountable for, the, for your souls. I'm not accountable for the souls of the believers in the church up the street. I'm accountable for your souls. So we must know who's part of the flock and who's not. And that's why we have such an emphasis on ownership here. And if you're new here, that's what we call membership. We call it ownership. And we have a big emphasis on that. Why? We need to know who is part of the body, whose souls we are responsible for. And if you bounce around from church to church, which elders are responsible for your soul? Do they know that? Do they know they're responsible for your soul? So scripture, by the way, uses three different terms, three different words interchangeably to describe elders. The first one is elder. We saw that in here. It's kind of neat because in this passage, there are all three of them are used. And elder kind of points to a spiritually mature man, 
Somebody who's going to lead and is, and is spiritually uh, capable and mature enough to lead. The second word is overseer. And this refers to kind of the general administration of all things ministry. They appoint elders and deacons. They handle finances and other ministry-related tasks. And the last word is pastor or shepherd. And shepherds have the priority of feeding the sheep. Or in other words, teaching the truth of God's word to the God's people. So Peter's command to the elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That is not optional. The elders must shepherd the flock of God that is among you, and that's you. Now, God likes to use the metaphor of sheep to describe people. Mostly, this is not a flattering term. Sheep are not smart. They are very needy, and they require constant watching. Sheep aren't even smart enough to find their own food or water. That's why a shepherd takes them and leads them to pastures. And if you leave them in a pasture, they will eat that down to the very dirt and kill it off so that it can never grow back. Sheep will overgraze. You can lead the sheep from the pasture down to the water for them to drink and then lead them back to the pasture and they will not remember where the water is. They are not smart. They won't remember how to get the water. They actually have no sense of direction. That's like my cousin Mark. <laughs> A lot like Mark, actually. That's another story. But they can't find their way home. So sheep easily get lost. They wander off, and they can't remember how to get back. You know, almost every animal has some sort of instinct on how to get home. I mean, we see these stories of, of dogs that got separated from their owners and they go thousands of miles and they find them. I don't, it's amazing how they can do that. That's not sheep. <laughs> sheep won't find their way home. And sheep have no natural defenses except to panic, which is not a defense. <laughs> okay? Now, if you add to this their lack of intelligence... They become food for whatever wants to devour them. And often they're not even intelligent enough that if the sheep next to them is being attacked, they're not even smart enough to run away. They'll just keep grazing. Sheep are not smart animals. They need constant attention and care. What they need is a shepherd. In Matthew 9, it says, seeing the people, he, that's Jesus, felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. In Ezekiel 34, it says, they were scattered for lack of a shepherd and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. Then, of course, Isaiah 53. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That describes sheep, and that describes us. Sheep need a shepherd. So elders are called to shepherd the flock of God. So what does it mean to shepherd the flock? 
I like what John MacArthur has to say. He says, the task of the shepherd carries with it an unequaled responsibility before the Lord. While it includes the positive elements of spiritual leadership towards maturity and Christ-likeness, the spiritual guardianship to protect the flock, its chief objective is feeding the flock through skillful preaching and teaching of divine revelation, which is the source of all those positive elements. So in other words, he's saying, hey, yes, you've got these duties. It includes uh, spiritual leadership to get people mature in Christ's life. It includes spiritual guardianship to protect the flock. But its chief objective is feeding the flock by teaching the word of God. And the Lord gives us an example of this, what it means to be a shepherd in, in Ezekiel 34. In Ezekiel 34, he starts out by saying, let me tell you how the earthly shepherds, the appointed leaders, the Jewish leaders are doing. And boy, are they messing up. And God says, this is how I shepherd. And he gives that example. Listen to Ezekiel 34. He says, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep, that have been scattered, so, I, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them to lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost I will bring back the strayed, I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. Our, Lord, our Lord's example gives us great insight on what it means to shepherd the people of God. One way, shepherds seek the lost and the scattered. That's what a shepherd does. They seek the lost and the scattered. And that's one of the most important tasks we have is to seek the lost. We are called to evangelize and to find those outside the church. This is not only for elders, however, we are all called to evangelize. As Carlos prayed, we are called to evangelize, to go out, to find the lost. All believers have that task. So what's unique for elders? To see how that has direct application, I'm going to look at 2 Timothy 4 one through five, specifically verse five, but I want you to hear the whole thing because this is a charge to Timothy who's an elder and this is what Paul says to him. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And here it is. As for you, always be sober-minded. Enduring suffering, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Do the work of an evangelist. That's a task to the elder. That's a task to the preacher. That's a task for the shepherd. And in this context... That means evangelize the lost in your own congregation. Okay, yeah, this is going to hurt a little bit. When the Apostle Paul tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist, he's not talking about going out and bringing more people in. He's talking about people in the congregation. 
We're repeatedly told throughout Scripture there will be people in our own midst who are not saved. This is one of the most heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching thoughts about being an elder, that we may have people who sit under our ministry, sit under our teaching, and yet they're not part of the kingdom of God. Jesus gave us the parable of the wheat and the tares. They're all in there together. But in Matthew chapter 7, he paints a vivid picture of this. He says there's a narrow gate that gets to heaven. There's a wide gate that leads to destruction. Few find the narrow gate. And on judgment day, there will be people who will call Jesus Lord, but not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, there are going to be people who think they're saved on the day of judgment. And yet they don't know Jesus. And this picture is far too real. You see, people begin stacking and, 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 and stacking their credentials as to why they think they're Christians. They basically build up their resumes of their qualifications and their job history and say, this is why I'm a Christian. They might list qualifications such as, well, I grew up in a church. I grew up in a Christian family. Hey, that's a good qualification. That should get me in. I attended Bible college or I even attended seminary. Or they can say, I was discipled by an elder in the church, or I was a member of a church. They might say, I prayed the prayer one day, where even the elders laid hands on me, and they list their qualifications. But every good resume has your job history as well. And they might list things such as, well, I taught Sunday school, I sang in the choir. I was on the music team. I hosted a home group. I led a home group. I served at a soup kitchen. I taught Bible studies. Maybe they say I was a missionary, or I was a deacon, or even I was an elder. See, that's my job history. That should get me in. And Jesus anticipated all of these. So he listed, and I'll call them, let's call them the top three, the thing that the, basically you can't do better than this, three job history qualifications that could be a way into heaven. And he said this. He said, prophets came to him. They prophesied. Now, come on. If you speak for God, certainly wouldn't that be an automatic in to heaven? And he said, some cast out demons. That's a pretty good qualification. You have power over the enemy. You should be able to get in. Then the kicker, perform miracles. Yeah, I perform miracles. You got to let me in if I can perform miracles. That's like the mic drop right there. Boom. But let's be clear. All right, prophecy. Balaam's donkey prophesied, all right? Get the standard out here, all right? Casting out demons. We know that Judas went out with the 12, and one of the things they did was cast out demons. Judas cast out demons. He was given that power and authority by Jesus Christ himself. And then how about miracles? 
We are told that the Antichrist will perform real miracles. Those are not qualifications for heaven. None of them are. So what is the criteria if it's not your resume? Well, Jesus makes that clear. We must know him. What does that mean? It's certainly not knowing about Jesus. Many, many people know about Jesus. But do you know him? Knowing him means that by supernatural means, God awakened my dead heart and breathed life into me so that I could hear, comprehend, and respond to the wonderful truths of the gospel. And only through the faith given to me by God could I put my trust in Jesus for salvation. No, this is not a decision I made for Christ. He transformed me into a new creation. I did not regenerate myself because I was dead in my sins and trespasses. So right now, today is the day of salvation. If you're hearing this and you feel that little knot in your stomach and you're wondering, where am I? I beg you, come, talk to us. I encourage you to do what Peter says in 2 Peter. He says, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. You see, even the apostles couldn't see into somebody's heart to know if they were saved or not. But we are called to examine ourselves. So let your salvation be tested by the scriptures. Are you a new creation in Jesus Christ? And again, if you have any questions, please come talk to us. We would love to talk with you. And there's so much more I could say on that, but that's only one point of what shepherds do. Shepherds also care for the flock. Shepherds meet the needs of the church. They bind the broken and they strengthen the weak. But they also guard the flock and they pray for the flock. You see, one of the most tangible ways elders can shepherd the flock is by caring for them and meeting their physical needs. We can visit the sick and the weary. We can go out and we can uh, talk to people, pray with them. We can demonstrate hospitality and we can even provide for physical needs. Elders care for the flock. But another way that elders care for the flock is by guarding them against wolves. You know, those are the false teachers who would like to come and devour the flock. So part of the shepherd's duty is to protect the flock and keep the wolves away. And see, here at Christ Community Bible Church, we do this in two ways. One way is through all of the teaching that we, we make available. We have theological seminars generally once a month. You want to go deep into some theology and some truth? You can come to those. We offer equipping classes on Sunday morning in different areas that you can come and, and learn truth and error. And a second way we guard the flock is from the pulpit. We adhere to expository preaching of the word of God. And all the elders here must submit to the word of God and its authority. We have no leeway to go outside the word of God. We cannot do that here. And I recall a story that I heard, and I'll probably get some of the facts wrong because I heard it years ago, but it was describing a pulpit 
in a, in a like early Reformation church in, in Germany. And these are, this is one of these big stone churches. And the pulpits, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of these. Perhaps you've even been to some of these. And the pulpits are raised maybe about 10 feet up. And, and the, the, the preacher would go up a spiral staircase up to the, to the platform up top so that they could be better seen and heard by the congregation. And this one church in Germany, in the banister that was going up the spiral staircase, had carved into the banister wild beasts and gargoyles and all kinds of nasty-looking things were crawling up the banister all the way to the top. But at the very top was a little dog facing down and growling. That little dog is the pastor. And all of these things that want to get to that pulpit, all of these wicked ideas, worldly ideas that want to get there, the pastor is protecting that pulpit from those things. And every time that pastor ascended into the pulpit, he'd be visually reminded of what his job was. Protect the people. Guard against false teaching as he got up there. I would love to find that church someday and see that for myself. But our job, the shepherd's job, is to care for the flock and to guard them. Another task of the shepherd is to feed the flock. This is perhaps the most crucial task of the shepherd. Both lists in, in, both, in 1 Timothy and Titus, lists of the qualifications for elders include able to teach and to hold fast to the faithful word which is in accordance with, those, uh, with the teaching so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. In other words, teaching is, is priority for the shepherd. If we're going to feed the flock, let me tell you what you're going to get fed. This, the word of God. That's what we do. That's what the pastor's job is. And in fact, if you go to the pastoral epistles, that's First and Second Timothy and Titus, three small epistles. And you look at the various Greek words for preach, teach, word, truth, and scripture, they occur more than 60 times in those three little books. That, just that repetition alone is an illustration of the emphasis on this part of the work for a shepherd. Shepherds must be diligent to serve a veritable banquet of God's precious food for the nourishment of our souls. And the work of the elder is to preach and teach the whole counsel of God. And again, 2 Timothy 4, shepherds have their marching orders. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myth. Shepherds preach the word. We don't add to it. We don't withhold from it. We don't alter it. We preach the word. And shepherds are always ready to preach the word, in season and out of season. Are there any other seasons when you're not preaching the word? No, in season and out of season. And I'm reminded of a, of, a, of a college basketball coach, I think this is back in the 80s, 
but he couldn't win games. The team was just couldn't win a game anywhere. And the coach lamented. He said, we can't win at home, and we can't win on the road. And quite frankly, I'm running out of ideas where we could possibly play to win. And that's the same thing here. There's no other place. We, we are ready in season. We are ready out of season to preach the word. That's our job. And feeding the flock means reproving. That's exposing false teaching and error. It means rebuking. That's when we have to issue those dire warnings about the consequences of sin. Shepherds exhort. That means we're going to plead with you. We're going to persuade you. We're going to keep going at you to, to turn away from false teaching and accept the truth. And not only that, we're going to press you for a verdict. We want you to make a decision. We want you so tied into this. We will exhort you. And the time is coming when people, and get this, this passage, even inside the church, will, will prefer and desire preaching that does not align with sound doctrine. In other words, people will prefer false teaching. As Dr. Steve Lawson put it, he said, they will desire a communicator rather than an expositor. And finally, shepherds lead their people to rest. That means that elders help their people to trust in God during uncertain times and especially during uncertain times. When our sheep struggle with anxiety, with fear, with adversity and conflict, the shepherd's job is to help them find shalom, the peace of God. A quote here from Bill Eubanks, who is our previous lead pastor, a good friend of mine and I've quoted him many times here already. Uh, he said, we must deliver them from where they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day and bring them back to the Prince of Peace. We help the sheep find rest. Now, we've only covered those first seven words, but we're told how to shepherd the flock. Peter gives us three contrasts. First, he says, don't do it this way. And then he says, do it like this. And we're going to see those three pairs of that. And by the way, that's similar to what we saw in, in Ezekiel, where he said, this is how they did it wrong, and this is how God will do it right. So the first one is, and I kind of reversed these, so it's positive up front, but shepherds are to shepherd the people willingly and not under compulsion. Why is this first on the list? Why, why would Peter say, hey, I need you to be willing, shepherds, and not doing this under compulsion? Is there an argument being made here that there are people who are made elders who don't want to be elders? That may be the case, but I think in this context, it's in the context of persecution and suffering. When persecution comes, the church does not need leaders who only lead out of obligation. The church does not need, uh, I guess I have to, attitude. What the church needs is I'm excited I get to approach to leadership. The church needs diligent leaders, not lazy ones. Men who take the, 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 uh, the job out of obligation will not be great shepherds. They'll lack the passion about the privilege to be an elder, and they will instead be indifferent to the task. If it's a take-it-or-leave-it approach, they'll soon leave it. 
They must be motivated by the heart to serve and not forced to take a role. You see, when the fiery ordeal comes, and oh, by the way, Peter says, the fiery ordeal is coming to those little churches. Shepherds need to be sure of their calling and confident in who they were following and trusting. Generally speaking, the elders, the shepherds, will be the first to suffer during persecution. And the worst thing that could happen is under that persecution, they fall away and don't provide the example they need to be for their people. Next, they must serve eagerly and not for sordid gain. The basic uh, scriptural qualifications for an elder make it clear that he's characterized by selflessness and sacrifice. If you are an elder, selflessness and sacrifice cannot be preoccupied with money. Now, that doesn't say that Scripture is not telling us that we don't pay pastors. In fact, it would tell us the opposite. It says those elders who serve diligently with greater commitment and excellence in teaching the Word of God and leading the flock should receive greater acknowledgement and more generous remuneration from their congregation. In other words, we pay the full-time pastors. You could double Tommy's my salary tomorrow, and it won't cost the church another dime. But we do pay the full-time pastors. But either way, not motivated by, by sordid gain, not motivated by money. You see, an eager elder delights in serving. Elders find joy in serving. According to Hebrews 13, we're supposed to, to have joy in serving. And no matter the labor, whether it's elder or, or anything else, it is satisfying to serve the living God. Whether you're an elder, whether you're a deacon, whether you greet, whether you provide hospitality, whether you teach in Sunday school or work in the nursery, they're satisfying. It's satisfying to serve the living God. Elders should be eager, excited, optimistic, enthusiastic, and glad-hearted to serve. You see, shepherding springs from the spiritual reality of what waits beyond this life, not what we can gain here on earth. Paul told the Corinthians, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. That's an elder. I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Sordid gain, however, goes beyond just seeking wealth. Seeking sordid gain is typical for false teachers. They masquerade as servants of God. And in 2 Peter, he describes them like this. He says, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Meaning it looks like they're getting away with it for now. Oh, but that day's coming. No true shepherd is ever motivated by money. And then finally, elders should shepherd by example and not by force or domination. Let me quote Jesus on this. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, domineering means you're subduing the people. You're lording it over them. 
You're forcefully ruling. It carries this essence of being harsh towards them, using excessive authority with the whole purpose and desire of domination. And that is a perversion of the office of elder. And instead, elders are called to be examples. Paul says in Philippians, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Be an example. In 1 Timothy, he says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So what does it mean to be an example, elders? In your personal life, do you walk with integrity before God and others? Do you manifest the fruits of the Spirit? Do you model servanthood? Are you an example of humility? Are you an example of contrition when you sin? Do you revere the word of God? Do you consistently treat all people with a dignity governed by the imago Dei? Are you a good example with your finances? Do you model the resistance of materialism? The resistance of materialism. Are you a good example with your tongue, with your temper? Are you an example for others on how to walk through life's adversities with a confident trust in God, a steadfast joy, and enduring hope? Or is your joy easily lost? In your family life, do you lead your family in an exemplary way? Is your marriage a good example of what you'd want to, to reproduce in others? Do you model consistent honoring of your wife? And are you leading your children along the path to spiritual virtue and impact? Do you teach them the scriptures? And finally, is your home a context of ministry to others? That's what it means to be an example. And that's a good checklist for elders to say, how am I doing in that? Jesus is the chief shepherd. In chapter 2 of 1 Peter, he's called the shepherd and overseer or guardian of our souls. And all earthly shepherds serve under the chief shepherd. And when he appears, that is, he returns, he's going to give us unfading crowns of glory. That's the motivation, another motivation for elders. Not only is Christ going to return, but he we will give an account. How well did I feed the flock? How was my example? How well did I care for the broken? Did I bind their wounds? You see, that day is coming, and elders serve in light of that day. And in Peter's day, the winning athletes were rewarded with this crown of wreaths that was perishable. It would die, it would fade. But the servants of Christ await a crown that is never going to fade. It's never going to die. It's never going to rust. It's eternal. James warns, he says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that, that, who, um, that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Shepherding the flock is a sobering and serious responsibility. But we serve a great and mighty king capable of far more than we can imagine and he can use even people like us. Finally, verse five. 
says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So after describing what's expected of elders to prepare and equip for the time of the fiery ordeal, remember, that's what we're doing. We're preparing for this fiery ordeal. Peter turns to the rest of the people. Elders are to shepherd and everyone else is to put on humility, be clothed in humility. Here's what I, I like is one of the best biblical definitions of humility. It's found in 2 Corinthians 3. It says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. You see, humility is confidence in God alone and not ourselves. Humility doesn't mean low self-esteem. It means we trust God. We're humble when we obey scripture, trusting God that he'll bring us through the ordeal. For example, we can demonstrate humility when we confess sin and ask forgiveness from another. We don't know their response, especially if it's from an unbeliever. Yet we trust God and we do as he commanded. Humility is spoken of by many, many church leaders over the years. Augustine said, if you plan to build a tall house of virtues, you must first lay deep foundations of humility. The Puritan preacher Richard Baxter said, humility is not a mere ornament of a Christian, but it is an essential part of a new creature. It is a contradiction in terms to be a Christian and not humble. And I have to include Jonathan Edwards. He says, nothing sets a Christian so much out of the devil's reach than humility. Micah says, he's told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Humility is important. Now, Peter begins by addressing young men. Perhaps this is just a contrast elder, so he says young men. But it could also be addressing the tendency of young men to be more headstrong and outspoken. So he has to speak directly to them. Be subject to your elders. This requires humility. Trust God to lead through the elders. And to everyone, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. We must be patient with one another for the sake of unity. We trust God. You see, we live in a world saturated with sin. People sin. Believers sin. We must not be too disappointed or discouraged when sin occurs. I'm reminded of a story a professor told me. He said he was flying into LAX one day, and LAX has this big basin, an LA basin. And he's in the airplane, and he's coming in to, the, to LAX to land, and he looks out the window, and he sees this basin out there. And it is filled with this brown, soupy air. Smog and probably dust and probably other things. And he's thinking, I'm going to land in that. I'm going to be breathing that in. That's going to get in my clothing. It's going to get in my hair. That's going to be everywhere. And yet after he landed, he looked up. And what did he see? He didn't see brown, soupy stuff. He saw blue skies. You see, it didn't go away. He was in it 
it was all around him, but he just couldn't see it. And that's how sin is in our lives. Sin in this world, it's all around us. We can't see it, but it permeates everything. Sin was destructive. So we should not be shocked when people sin, even brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes, that's very disappointing. And in fact, if you want to do a little heart check on that, aren't you more disappointed when a family member does something to you, wrong, wrongs you in some way? You seem to take that, more offense to that, more surprised by that. And yet, people sin. And we have to have humility to know that. And we have to have humility that we trust God through all of this. God's working in their hearts. God's doing something. What's my part? My part of obedience. I'll do my part. So here's the reward. God gives grace to the humble. We receive grace when we act with humility. All right, so how can we apply this to our lives? How can we support the elders of Christ Community Bible Church? And here's some takeaways. Number one, attend regularly. This is where you are fed. This is where you receive encouragement. I'm not going to throw rocks at people. I know that people have jobs and can't always be here. But this is where you receive the food of the word of God. Don't ever let I don't want to be your reason for not attending. This is a fundamental responsibility you have to God and to your fellow believers. You see, every believer has a blood-bought gift, a spiritual gift for the edification, for the serving of the body. Here, when you're not here, you cannot serve us and we cannot receive the gift and you cannot receive what we have to offer to you. You see, we need each other. These gifts were decided and chosen by God and given to us. And if you're not here, you can't exercise those gifts. Take advantage of equipping classes, theological seminars, home groups, discipleship groups. This is how you're fed. And if you struggle with, I'm not growing, first ask yourself, are you there? Are you here? Are you where the food is? If you're wondering why you're not growing, are you being fed? Now come talk to the elders. We're, we're not going to, we're going to help you. That's what we want. But this is where you're fed. This is where you need to be. Number two, pray for your elders and for each other. Question, don't you want those who are keeping watch over your souls to be lifted up before the very throne of God? You have a personal stake in this. Pray for your elders. Elders are also imperfect and have a lot of weighty responsibilities. We need your prayers. We need God to be doing the supernatural things that can only be attributed to him. And do you want to draw closer to others here at Christ Community Bible Church? Pray for them. Get with them before the service or after the service. Ask them how you can pray for them. You'll get to know them. You'll begin to connect with people. And then seek out the scriptures to see how you can pray for one another with deep spiritual prayers we find in scripture. Number three, let your salvation be tested by the word of God. I've talked about this quite a bit, but I'm going to say, John, the Apostle John said, I write these things to you that you may know you have eternal life. Seek the scriptures. Ask for help. Don't let that knot in your stomach go unanswered. Talk to us. And then finally, follow your elders. The elders spend time in prayer and scripture seeking God's desire for Christ Community Bible Church. Can't do this alone. As Carlos said, we labor together in the trenches. 
We need all of us to fulfill the Great Commission. Give your elders the benefit of the doubt. Please think the best of each other always here at Christ Community Bible Church and talk to us if you have questions. Also, kill all gossip. Gossip is divisive, has no place in the church of God. And exercise humility towards each other. God gives grace to the humble. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and the marvelous truths that we find in it. Help us to prepare for the days of trial. Give us godly men to serve as shepherds over this flock. Raise up all men in qualification and set apart a few to shepherd this flock at Christ Community Bible Church. And Lord, clothe us all in humility towards one another. We desire your glory alone, and we pray this through the Son and by the Spirit.